Today we're continuing through our study in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 4, and we arrive at Jesus' very first sermon, and I've titled this sermon, The Sermon That Almost Got Jesus Killed. As you'll see from the passage, Jesus escapes near death uh, quite closely by the end of the passage. But this is his first sermon. What's the context so far? So far in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus, as an adult, has been baptized by John the Baptist, and at that point, the Holy Spirit anointed him for ministry. He was immediately led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he declared victory over the devil's temptations. That was that scene, and we saw that last week. He declared victory over the devil's temptations. And now, immediately coming out out of the, the wilderness, he steps into his hometown synagogue, small town, steps into it, and he gives his very first sermon as an official rabbi. Let's read how this goes. Verse 14 of chapter 4. Jesus returned, that's from the wilderness, in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Now here's the quote from the prophet Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him, and they marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. Now when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They rose up, drove him out of the town, and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. In the word of the Lord. Now, what I'd like to do is I want to show you three reasons why this sermon nearly got Jesus killed. (laughs) And as I do that, I want us to reflect on ourselves and the gospel message that we carry. In our day, at least in the West, in America, the message of the gospel isn't going to get you killed, but it will get you canceled. And the question I have for us is, are we carrying the same message? Three reasons it nearly got him killed. Number one, Jesus' message was radically holistic. It was radically holistic. Now, when I say holistic, what I mean is exactly what we were talking about when we looked at that video. Jesus' message spoke to two sides of a person. He dealt with the spiritual issues of that person. He talked about their soul and the need their soul had. And then he talked about their physical needs and the need to care for people in that way. Now, what's the scene here? 
It opens up in Luke chapter four. Jesus is stepping into a synagogue. Now this would have been a gathering just like this, probably a little smaller than this to be honest with you, but it would have been a gathering like this. And the local rabbi, what he would have done is Jesus, being an official rabbi at that point, 30 years of age, he would become an official rabbi, would have been given permission to give the homily or the short sermon on the text for that day. They gave him a big scroll of Isaiah. If you've seen one of these before, they're about, you know, about this big, and you roll them out to the exact place. It takes about two or three people to roll this scroll to the exact place. Jesus rolls it to Isaiah chapter 61, and he reads just one and a half verses to them. And then he says, this has been fulfilled in your midst today. Now, in the passage of Isaiah 61, verses 18 and 19, which are, which are quoted for us in our scripture, there are four different groups of people that Jesus says he's come for. And with all four of those groups, Jesus' life and ministry demonstrates that he came for the spiritual needs of that group and the physical. Let's go through all four of them. The first one he talks about, he says... The spirit of the Lord has anointed, the spirit is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Jesus came for the poor. Now, when we read the word poor, typically in our context, we immediately think of the economic poor, those who don't have a lot of finances. Certainly that's part of what that word means for Jesus, economically poor. But poor means much more than that. The word poor in that day would have had the sense of economically marginalized, on the outskirts of society, the, disen the disenfranchised, the, those who just need a little more help to get by. Jesus came to proclaim good news to the poor. Now, Jesus uses this word to speak spiritually as well as physically. How does he do it spiritually? The New Testament teaches us that those who are rich in this world are often the most bankrupt spiritually, and that those who are poor in this world are often the most spiritually rich. So James chapter two, verse five. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Over and over again in Jesus' teachings and in the teachings of the New Testament, we find this, this teaching made very apparent that riches are incredibly deceitful in this world, and more often than not, the, the physically poor are actually those who have the blessing. What good news is that to the poor? But there's something spiritual behind that. Remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus? Remember that parable? The rich man in this world had much. Lazarus was essentially homeless, sleeping outside of his door in the physical world, but they both died. The rich man ends up in hell, and Lazarus, who is poor in this world, ends up in the abundance of heaven. Jesus over and over taught that we, we cannot confuse physical prosperity with spiritual prosperity, but that oftentimes the poor have something great to teach us about the spiritual nature of things. But Jesus also came to deal with physical poverty as well. He cared deeply, not just for the spiritual reality of poverty, but for the, the needs of people they had in their, in their life. He condemned the rich Pharisees who devoured widows' houses. That's the language he used. He says they devour widows' houses. There was a practice where they were functionally, the, the rich religious Pharisees of the day were extorting money from the most poor among them, the needy widow. And he celebrated the two mites that that poor widow was able to give in the very next verse. In the New Testament church, what we find is that no person went without in the life of the community. Anybody who had nothing, they were going to make sure that if they were part of the New Testament church, they had something. It doesn't mean it was equal. It, does, it wasn't a perfectly egalitarian state, but those who had much made sure that those who had little had enough. He dealt with spiritually poor, 
and physically poor. The second group that we have. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Liberty to the captives. Again, first we have a spiritual issue. Over and over again in the New Testament, we see that Jesus spoke into spiritual captivity. We know that the Bible teaches that until we have faith in Jesus Christ, we have been spiritually held captive by demonic forces, by the devil. We've been blinded. In fact, that's the next category we're going to get to in a minute. But over and over again, Jesus heals people, and when he heals them, what's the first thing he does? He casts demons out of them. There are spiritual realities going on in the ministry of Jesus where he sees underneath the physical world, he sees what's really going on, and he deals with that captivity that they're facing. And in reality, so many of the issues that we face on a day-to-day basis, we're only dealing with the physical, but there is a deeper spiritual need going on that we forget. Jesus never forgot that. He always spoke to the spiritual. In Christ, the spirit of deception is broken. The captivity of their soul is ended. But he also spoke to physical captivity. In Christ, he spoke often about those who are in prison. Matthew 25, that beautiful message Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 25. He he says, you know, when when you visited and, and you cared for the poor and you cared for the hungry and you gave clothing to the naked and you visited those in prison, you were doing it to me. The way we... We care for those who are in captivity physically. It's as if we're loving Jesus. I wonder if the New Testament church in the modern West could get that in their mind, what the love of the church would look like to that watching world. I wonder if we believed that, that as we washed people's feet, we were washing the feet of Jesus, what the church might be mobilized for. Spiritual, physical needs. Third category, He sent me recovering of sight to the blind. The blind. Well, spiritually we know that until we find Jesus Christ, we are all spiritually blind. We do not know our left hand from our right, metaphorically speaking. We do not know anything about God. No matter how wise we think we are, no matter how deep our former religious impulses have taken us, if we don't know Christ, we know nothing. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, talking about those who don't know Christ, in their case, the God of this world, referring to the devil, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Jesus came to free people from spiritual blindness, to know God, to live the life that they were designed to live, a holy life unto the one true and living God. But he also dealt with physical blindness. He, he literally healed physical blindness. And not just blindness, but all sorts of physical maladies. He he healed lepers. He healed those who were paralyzed. All types of physical needs, Jesus stepped in and he healed them. This is one of the reasons that Christians have always been overwhelmingly uh, positive in building hospitals. Did you know that? That, that? That's where much of the medical industry found its origin, was in the life of Jesus Christ, healing people. That's why missionaries for centuries were planting hospitals all around the world. It was a Christian ministry to heal the physical bodies of those who were hurting because they knew that's what Jesus did. Doctors take great courage and encouragement in who Jesus was and that your ministry follows that suit. Who's the fourth category? To set at liberty those who are oppressed. Now, who's spiritually oppressed? Well, Jesus often talked on these different categories of people who were were spiritually oppressed, in his day, 
all sorts of brokenness in their life. And the oppression came from the enemy. Again, there's some overlap of these categories here, but they were oppressed by demonic spirits. They were oppressed by generational curses in their life, mistakes that their fathers or their father's fathers had made that left them in such a situation that they couldn't get out of it. They were broken. And Jesus often spoke into those situations. But he also spoke into the physically oppressed, didn't he? Jesus often had categories like widow, orphan, immigrant, the poor, the weak, the needy, the marginalized. These are categories that Jesus spoke of regularly and the New Testament church. James chapter one, verse 27. I love this verse. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The wonderful work of adoption that this church does is simply falling in line with, line with 2,000 years of church history of Christians adopting children. Why? Well, because, because we care about the physical oppression of people. We don't want that to take place. Wherever you find a people oppressed throughout history, you typically find Christians engaged powerfully. Because Jesus came to set the captive free. He came to proclaim liberty to those who were oppressed. Now, we are not Jesus, and yet we're empowered by the very same Holy Spirit that Jesus was to do very similar ministry that Jesus did. We're equipped for ministry, and the message of Christianity is a radically holistic message of caring for the spiritual needs and physical needs of people wherever we go. Now, we make two mistakes with this, and I'm going to be overwhelmingly clear here in an effort to get myself canceled. (laughs) The first mistake we make is what historically has been called the social gospel. The social gospel has taken on a new form in today's day and age, which we call being woke. So let me go through this together with you, okay? What is the social gospel? Historically, the social gospel is this idea that what Jesus came to do was only deal with the physical needs of people. That was it. It's just the physical needs. And so the idea with the social gospel is if we can just plant enough hospitals, have enough orphanages, have enough uh, ministries that care for people's needs, then, then we'll reach salvation. That's what Jesus was after. It's only social concerns. We just have to deal with people's physical needs, and that's all Jesus needs. At the expense of talking about sin, at the expense of dealing with salvation, at the expense of talking about heaven and hell and the need to receive Jesus by faith, Richard Niebuhr, a a famous theologian, he described the social gospel this way. He He said, the social gospel is a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of Christ without a cross. That's a summary of what the social gospel taught. And throughout the 19th century, and then moving again into the 20th and 21st century, what we found is the social gospel beginning to thrive and take root as preachers began to stop preaching about sin and salvation in Christ and only focus on the physical needs of people. And this is a false gospel. And in our day today, there's a modification of it, which we call being woke. Now, what does this mean, being woke? You guys at this point are familiar with this term. It's been around long enough. But the idea is this that the world can be broken into two groups, oppressed and oppressors. That's it. That's That's the narrative. The narrative is there are those who are oppressed and those who are oppressors, and each person is somewhere in this category to a different degree of how oppressed they are. And our job as society to bring about, quote, salvation, the best society we can, is to free those who are oppressed from their oppressors. And how do we do this? Well, historically, it's by revolution, 
right? But whatever the way we do it is, is we undermine the historic institutions that have created this, this divide between the two so that those who were oppressed can become the oppressors. And it never ends. It's a constant cycle. This is Marx for you. This is Marx that then moved into cultural Marxism, which now has moved into what we call woke philosophy. It's nothing more than the social gospel in a new veneer. And Christians can stand radically against it. Why? Because we know that Jesus did not just come for physical needs. Jesus came to address the spiritual needs underneath as well. And a gospel that proclaims only physical needs, detached from spiritual needs, is not the message that Jesus came to proclaim in this first message. Now, today, that'll get you canceled real quick. They did it to Jesus. You say this, woke is broke, and you're done. Are you able to say it? What do you stand for, Christian? There's a second mistake we make. On the theologically liberal end, what I mean is beginning to detach yourself from scriptures, people tend to fall into that category. On the theologically conservative end, there's another mistake people make. Sometimes churches, Christians, what they do is they hold on to scripture so tight, and that's good. I'm not, hold on to scripture tight. But what they do is everything becomes about theology and what you know and what you believe to be true, right? And it's all about the mind and it's all about getting your theology in order and crossing your T's and dotting your I's and making sure that you've read Calvin and you've, you know, you've read Abrockel and you've read, you know, Herman Bovink and all these theologians and that, now you're really saved. Hey, have you washed anyone's feet recently, Mr. Theologian over there? Whoa, 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 whoa. It's just up here. I know my stuff. <laughs> I know my stuff. No, 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 but, but have you had anybody uncomfortable in your home recently? Have you, uh, have you visited anybody in prison? Yeah, but I've memorized portions of Calvin. <laughs> Trust me, I got this. Yeah, but, but have you bled for the gospel? Because that's the, that's the gospel that Jesus talked about. And a lot of the people who are the loudest shouting down woke theology are standing on this ground. And they haven't washed any feet. Galatians chapter 2 verse 10 the Apostle Paul, after convening with the apostles in, in Jerusalem, he gets sent out to proclaim the good news to the entire Mediterranean, plant churches everywhere. What does he say in Galatians chapter 2, verse 10? Only they asked us to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. <laughs> the very thing so many Christians forget. And we have a depleted gospel on both ends of that mistake. Permit me to ask you a few questions to see if your faith is radically holistic. Do you lament as much for people's spiritual brokenness as you do for their physical brokenness? Do you, this is, are you accidentally standing in this camp? Do you, do you see underneath their physical needs, their need for Jesus? Do you, does your heart ever break for a soul that just doesn't know Christ? And you pray for them and, and ask God, would you save them? 
I could never have the words to do it, but Jesus, get a hold of their soul. I know that would solve so much in their life and it would save their soul in eternity. Is that ever a prayer you pray? Do you see souls the way Jesus did? Or is your mistake on this side? Have you forgotten that we're supposed to love the poor? Church, our gospel needs to be radically holistic. And then we'll start getting canceled the right way. Right? We're told by Jesus this is going to happen. When it happens, it means you're on the right track. Second reason he got nearly killed. Jesus preached the centrality of Christ. He preached the centrality of Christ. He preaches this whole thing. And then he says this. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled. Now, now what's he saying? They got this. Isaiah 61 is a, messianic, is a messianic passage. In fact, if you keep your finger here and turn to the middle of your Bible and go to Isaiah chapter 61, it's a fascinating chapter to read. Because, and where Jesus cuts it off is fascinating as well. He cuts it off with, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So let me turn to Isaiah 61 and read it to you. The spirit of the Lord of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor he has sent me to blind up, bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And Jesus didn't say that part. But every good Jew in that synagogue would have known Isaiah 61, and they would have known it's a messianic psalm, and the one who has the rights to make the claim that he stands in judgment, that he is the one who not only brings peace, but he also brings judgment for the evildoer, is one person and one person alone, and it's the Messiah, the long-awaited King of Kings who was to come. And when they saw him saying, right now, in front of you, in your midst, it's fulfilled, he was pointing to himself as the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 61. And their, their first astonishment, the more they lingered on that. You see, if you look at this passage, they, if they first look on him with this kind of attentive graciousness, and then slowly it turns into anger the more they mull it over. It was all about Jesus. Jesus preached the centrality of himself. Now, now what was happening here? Jesus said no prophet is except in his hometown. Now, they had become overly familiar with Jesus. This was little Jesus. He was the boy that had grown up in their midst. They knew him when he was a teenager. They knew him when he was a young man. They knew when his father Joseph had died. And he kind of took on some more responsibilities among his family and with his siblings. They watched him. It was a small town. Those of you who are from small towns, you know what it's like to know other people from your small town. You're familiar with them. And so now Jesus steps into the, the centerpiece. He says, I'm the Messiah. And they say, 15-year-old Jesus, I remember you kicking a soccer ball down the street. How could you be the Messiah? They had become so familiar with him that they weren't able to see the reality of who he actually was. Their familiar with Jesus had blinded them from seeing the centrality of Christ to their own salvation. Now, the true message of the gospel is all about Christ. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there's salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven or earth given among men by which we must be saved. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The message of Jesus and what he's proclaiming in this message is a message of disruption. It, it disrupts lives. To truly preach the gospel is to plead with people that the only way to find life is in Christ. There is no other path. 
All other paths will only lead to death because only in Christ is the sin that holds us down from experiencing life as it was designed to be lived is that broken. There's no other path that can break sin. Now in our culture again today, if you really understand that message, that will get you canceled very quickly. We're living in a day where what's, what's the message? The message can actually be traced back to the 17th century philosophy. It's this idea that the, the, the best version of you is your most authentic self. Where does this come from? It comes from a lot of places, but probably the earliest is a man named Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who's a French philosopher, who coined this phrase way back when. He said, man is born free, but everywhere is in chains. Beautiful philosophy in terms of words, ultimately false. Now, what's Rousseau saying? This is the heartbeat of our modern culture, so listen closely. What Rousseau said a few hundred years ago is that little baby you, when you just came out of the womb, that was an authentic you. But then you started to grow up in this world filled with these institutions that were telling you who you needed to be. And you were being forced to fit into these preconceived ideas of what a man was and what a woman was and what a husband was and what a father was and, 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 and what a worker was and what a store owner was and what you should do with your time. And the church was speaking into it and businesses were speaking into it and media were speaking into it. And so that perfect little innocent authentic you got lost in the midst of all these chains. And so what's salvation? Forget the institutions. Forget the preconceived notions. Who are, who are you really? Because that's good. What's innocent Rafe like when you were just a baby, right? If you can figure that out, apart from all these institutions, now that's salvation, the most authentic version of you. So what's our culture doing today? This week, we had a biological man win woman of the year. A society gone mad. Why did that happen? Why did that happen? Because there's a preconceived notion of what a man and a woman is. And if Rousseau is right, we have to throw that preconceived notion out the door because there's something bigger than the, the binary of man and woman. And the true you is what you feel you are, your most authentic self. Salvation. Are we achieving it? How do our women feel? I don't think we are. But what happens when you come along and you say that there is salvation in no other name but Jesus? Every other path will lead to life. The gospel says you were born enslaved to sin. And the only way to break those chains is by having Jesus set you free from them because he came to set the captive free. It's the exact opposite. You're born in sin and freed in Christ. And for the Christian to step into the, the public space like Jesus did in this first sermon and to say, you think world around you, you know what will give you salvation, but you are destroying yourself from the inside out. Society will go down very fast, very far. Women will be hurt. Men will be hurt. Society will fall apart. And the only way to change it is to stand on the word of God, to proclaim Jesus is the king of kings, and his law is the only right way for life. Everything else is death. Amen. The gospel does not affirm people as they are. It just says, here's what it says. It does not say, come as you are, you are accepted. 
It says you must die to who you are to be reborn in Christ. Now, this is not my political stand, right? This is not me taking my, like, this is what irks me this week. This is Jesus' ministry. He had a way. He spoke truth. He declared what was right. And he calls us to do the same. J.C. Riley was commenting on this passage, a famous, wonderful theologian. And he said, uh, he said, he was speaking about those who took Jesus for granted because they'd grown up around him. And he said, we are apt to think lightly of the privilege of an open Bible, a preached gospel, and the liberty of meeting together for public worship. We grow up in the midst of these things and are accustomed to have them without trouble. And the consequence is that we often hold them very cheap and underrate the extent of our mercies. You know, the road to where society has gotten, it, it actually is filled with a whole bunch of people who used to be Christians. You know that? And, and the way it got there was they started taking Jesus for granted the way they did in this passage. And it started with little things for us. It can start by taking the word for granted. No passion for the word of God. No engagement with the word of God. Just kind of taking it for granted. What you're doing is you're taking Jesus for granted. And it starts this progress in your life. I've seen too many friends make this thing. You kind of start there. Then you're not going to church. I, don't, I can do it on my own. I got online church now. Right? I just did a study. We, we just watched a whole video this week with my staff team on, on trends in the church and what, what's happening with people's hearts and minds right now. And How many people used to go to church, but now they just they do an online church every now and then. And then you slowly start... All of a sudden, you're detaching. And before you know it, you're standing over here. Where did it start? You took Jesus for granted. You took the communion meal for granted. You didn't savor it. You didn't, you didn't prepare for it. And you go before the throne of grace, say, thank you, Jesus. Are you taking Jesus for granted in any way? The gospel is marvelous news for us. He saved us from our sin. He saved us from the wrath of God. We need to have an overwhelming adoration of the King of Kings who loved us enough to send Christ to the cross to die for us. Number three, Jesus preached a radical, holistic love of our enemies. You know, the, the rest of this uh, message from Jesus is really fascinating. He, he, he goes through two examples to make his point. He says, a, a, you know, a prophet's not accepted in his hometown. And what he's saying to them is, you local Jews are not accepting me. Jesus was Jewish, and he's saying, you Jews aren't accepting me. And, and then he quotes two stories from the Old Testament that come from one of the more spiritually depraved seasons in Israel's history. The seasons of the prophet Elijah and the prophet Elisha. Underneath the prophet Elijah, Elijah the prophet lamented. He thought he was the only true Jew left in all of Israel. But the Lord reminded him, no, I still have a handful of men and women who have not bound the knees to the false gods. But it was a low point. And, and who did, the, who did the, the help through the prophet come to? Was it to an Israelite? No, it wasn't. It was to a, a widow from a Gentile surrounding nation. What about during Elisha? Did, did, did it go to any of the lepers in Israel? No, the spiritual poverty was so low. The good news went to Naaman the Syrian the commander of the Syrian army, the ones who were attacking Israel, the enemies of Israel. 
You know, we, we can't really get into, I don't know how to get into the mind of Jesus' message here. When, when Jesus said this, we have to get into, we have to understand the mind of an Israeli person towards their enemies that they're surrounded by. How would we do that? Well, we're living through this in reality right now. And so, I, I, let's take an honest look at this. We've just watched as Hamas committed war crimes so abominable that they have to be compared to what Hitler did. And all on video, all boasting, involving children, involving women, involving innocence. You've seen it. We know that. What if Jesus preached this message in a local synagogue to Israel and said, you're not believing me. I'm bringing the gospel to Hamas. What would they feel today? They might take him to the cliff and throw him off. Now, what am I not saying in this moment right now? Nations have a right to defend themselves. Romans chapter 13, governments have the sword to protect their nations, to carry out justice on evildoers. This has nothing to do with what government responsibilities are. This has nothing to do with anything like that at this point. This has everything to do with Christians determining in their heart to love their enemies and really understanding the message that Jesus preached. One of our pastors on staff is Jewish, a Messianic Jew. And he was saying when he saw the news of what happened last week, immediately he was filled with an overwhelming hatred and anger for the terrorists that killed his people. That the Lord then convicted him and said, wait a second, those are the exact people that you need to pray for their salvation. And the tension in his heart he felt, knowing what Christ had called him to do, and yet wanting to follow but feeling that pain in his life. Loving our enemies is a hallmark of Christianity that sets Christianity apart from pretty much every other worldview and religion you could ever imagine. The, the popular word is to cancel somebody. That doesn't come with Christianity. That's, that's not where that originated from. The, uh, throughout history, you find radical forgiveness from Christians. You, you find stories where loved ones were, had the worst done to them, and they get up and they... They just proclaim, I forgive you. And then it's done again. And wicked and evil is done to them again. And they, they get up and they say, I want you to be loved in the name of Jesus. Can I wash your feet? This love of enemies is something that we have to pick up again. It's very possible to stand boldly against wickedness while at the same time praying for your enemies. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 to 44. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, let's take our eyes off of Israel and Hamas for a second. That's, that's so big and wicked and evil that I, uh, it's hard to personalize that. Every person in this room has somebody in your life who's harmed you at some point in some way. Not to the level of Hamas, but to the level that you were wounded, you were injured, your soul was hurt, your family was hurt, 
by real wickedness, real evil. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying you had the wrong perception of it. I'm saying it was real evil by the standard of the word of God. And there is real judgment to be had. But we are called to leave judgment and vengeance to God. And we are called to forgive our enemies. Now, one of the reasons Jesus nearly got killed for this sermon was he was telling them, those neighbors that you hate are gonna get the gospel. And I have to ask us, to the person that has injured you and wounded you and harmed you, can you pray for them fervently to know the hope of the gospel? Can you find ways to love and serve them? Can you find... See, this is where, you know, when we talk big as a church, and we, we talk about movements, and we talk about, you know, nations, Israel, we talk about philosophies, being woke. That's all fine, because it, it's kind of like it's out here somewhere. It's like you can get behind that. I'm talking about, like, your life, your schedule, your actual prayer life, your actual dinner table. Have in mind right now someone who truly has injured you and is worthy of true judgment from God. How are you going to serve them? Now, here's what I don't want to do. Some of you are, have been victims, and you, you really need healing. And me telling you, go run into your abuser's path is, the, is actually wrong. So just know there's a time where your church needs to come around you and heal you, care for you. We have deacons. There's a time you don't just run back into your oppressor. But there is actually also something where the gospel, when it really takes root in your heart, it so changes your heart that naturally over time you begin to see the brokenness of that person's condition and you begin to pray for them. Because isn't this the gospel? Isn't this what Jesus did on the cross? Didn't he come for rebels like us? Didn't he give his life and pour out his blood for those who were his enemies? While we were still enemies, Christ died for us, says the scriptures. We didn't just have life together and we're honoring him. No, we, we, we were enemies of the king. We were the ones who were putting him on the cross. Forgive them for they know not what they do. See, this is the gospel. And Christians now step into the place of Jesus, ministering like Christ as we love our enemies. And it's a bold witness to the world. This sermon nearly got Jesus killed. But what happened at the end? Let me close on this. Look at verse 30. Beautiful little verse. They take him to the cliff. They're going to throw him off because they can't stand what he has to say. But passing through their midst, he went away. Culture is trying to break the church. They're trying to shut the church up. Around the globe, they're trying to put pastors in prison and make sure the church won't go forward. The king can't be stopped. The church will move forward just fine. Do not bend. Do not bow. Do not be discouraged. Your king is marching triumphantly, and he has miraculous ways that you cannot see to make sure his kingdom is established. Your job is to follow in his footsteps as he parts the Red Sea for you to follow. And he's beckoning you today, asking him, asking you, will you follow? Pray with me. Father, we adore you. We love you. We recognize that this is a hard message today. It is not easy. But Lord, no Christian has an easy life. We're called to follow a king who was crucified. I pray for those in this room today that you would minister to us, that we would faithfully follow your words, that we would not get stuck in our old ways, but that you would lead us to new, new grass, new fields, 
new places of our faith, new boldness in our love of others. Help us to be those salty Christians that even other Christians, nominal Christians, don't know what to do with, that we're just the salt and light of the world and and everyone knows it. Make this church alive with your spirit, with integrity following the life of Christ. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.